Hi, I'm Allie Jackson Jolly. I'm here with Tamira Chapman, who is the president and CEO of Storehouse in a Box. She's also an attorney and a philanthropist and a um, advisory council member for Forbes BLK. Tamira, welcome and thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Allie. It's an honor and a privilege. Yeah, so um, about a month ago when we were at the Forbes BLK um, Summit, we had a really interesting conversation, and that was around how the black community and the brown communities in America tend to over-index in terms of philanthropy and volunteerism, but not necessarily in terms of wealth building. Um, doing both, doing well while doing good, is something that you focus on um, with your organization. You help nonprofits create sustainable revenue flows. Um, and so talk to me about yeah. how you think we can get our community to understand that you can do well, you can be a philanthropist, but you could also and should also be thinking about building your own wealth. Absolutely. So thank you for that question. And you're right, when we had this conversation a couple weeks ago, it was really centered around how do we continue to do well by doing good? And so in terms of philanthropy, I think it's absolutely necessary because once you develop a deep why and you know why you're working so hard, then it becomes easy to make money. It becomes easy to accumulate wealth. So if we're simply seeking to build wealth for wealth's sake, that generally doesn't work. And that's not the type of wealth that'll stick around for too long. But when we understand the different things that we desire to move the needle on. So if I know that I wanna help underserved kids in the community, if I know I want to move the needle with cures for cancer or eradicate hunger in Africa, then that's what's requiring the work for me, right? So I think that the first thing that needs to happen is we do need to identify causes that, are, that we're deeply passionate about. And once we identify those causes, then it gives us the why, we use that why to go out and to drive capital. The second part of that is, it has taken a long time for us to get to this point in history. And so in my particular family, it's taken 400 years to make a millionaire. And because that is the case, I cannot allow another 400 years to go by before it can happen again. So what that means is that my generation has to stop and be very thoughtful about wealth strategies that we can employ for future generations. Yeah, and so um, if I may, you actually spoke about something sort of personal to yourself in, in, in talking about how you wanna make sure 400 years from now, right. your, your son, your grandchildren, your great great grandchildren have um, money and are you know are not worried about being um, at the bottom of the wealth pool. Can you just explain a little bit about how you're doing, how you see that, and how you're doing that? Yeah, for sure. So my husband and I have been very intentional about uh, providing for not just our son, but for his heirs as well. And so when we think about it, there are a few things that we believe will really change the trajectory of his life. One is making sure that he has access to a quality education. And so getting him in the best schools that we can possibly afford today. And then the second part of that 
is making sure that when it's time for him to procure a home, that he's in a position to do so because we know owning a primary residence is one of the primary drivers of wealth building in the United States. And then a third part of that is making sure that there's access to capital. Should he ever want to start a business or should he want to do something else? If he doesn't want to work in corporate America, say he decides to go in sports, he actually has the luxury to do that. He has the luxury to try. And so those are the building blocks that we believe are foundational to building wealth. And because that's the case, we've did everything we can to see that that is provided for, for him and for future generations as well. And so we don't believe that the key to driving wealth is everything that we've managed to acquire in our lifetime to give it all to him, because we wanna make sure that he continues to have a strong work ethic and that he understands what it takes to be successful in America and beyond. And then we wanna make sure that those lessons are passed on to future generations, but giving them all that same head start, because we believe if we would have had access to something similar, we would already be much further as well. Yeah, I love that. Um, and you mentioned access. And so I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about something I know um, is a new um, passion, yeah. mission and project of yours. And that is creating more access to um, the publishing world for underserved communities. So making sure that there are more authors from That's underserved communities who have a voice and can tell their stories and get them published. Um, tell me a little bit about what you're doing and how, I guess how you got, how that became something that you started thinking so deeply about. Yeah, so thank you for that question. Um, so maybe about a year ago, uh, Miss Obama was releasing The Light We Carry. And we had the fortunate honor to partner with Penguin Random House um, to do a special edition of her book and to release that to our various audiences. Um, as part of that work, the team was pleased. And the thought was, you know, Tamira, you've been so helpful to us. Is there anything that we can do to support you? And I said, for sure. I'd love to have you all help me demystify the publishing pipeline on behalf of black and brown communities. And so in that regard, we set out about 12 months to today to develop a program entitled Women in Words. And this program has allowed over 10,000 underserved women to come through and literally learn everything they can about publishing from A to Z with Penguin as the anchor for that. So it's, it's really been extraordinary. Yeah, and so um, anyone who has worked with me recently knows that there is a date that's tattooed on my brain. That's 2045. That's the year by which um, if population growth uh, continues as it is now, um, there will be more people of color in this country than not. And so um, I bring that up because I think places like um, Pe uh, Penguin, certainly places like Forbes, yeah understand that in order to grow audience um they they have to be making these efforts to bring in more authentic voices um but can you tell me how to, I, I just would love to hear like how has that been to try to get into a industry that is traditionally not very diverse and then to make the case for more diverse voices like what have you found yeah so i found uh working with the penguin team that it was welcomed and they were extraordinary champions for the work uh so it wasn't lost on the team that by 2045 will be majority minority 
Um, so I don't think that there was much of a case to be made. Uh, in this particular case, it was simply mating up a willing partner with the audience that really desired the information. And I think that what we found from working together over the last 12 months is that um, it's needed and that uh, when we create these sort of spaces, we see extraordinary energy come out of it. And I think that we'll all be better for it. Okay, yeah, um, I agree. Um, and then how about you and I also have discussed the idea of a legacy, right? Yeah. I mean, I heard you talk about that with your, your son and your family in terms of yeah. wealth, but also in terms of the work that you're doing um, to create pipe, diverse pipelines. Um, and sort of this idea that there's not enough of us in these um, leadership roles now, yeah. um, and we sort of feel like we can't leave until the pipeline's <laughs> larger. Um, yeah. How do yeah. how do you create a pipeline? You know, often the argument in industry is, well, we'd love to, we'd love to bring people in, but the pipeline just isn't there. Um, what do you say to that? And how do you how do you build that pipeline? I say to that they simply don't have access to the pipeline. And so I think that if there is a desire uh, to bring in more diverse voices into some of these spaces, you have to start with a diverse voice. And so uh, what we found in the publishing space is that we have uh, black women that are spending two times as much in terms of their annual budgets in purchasing books. Um, they're spending at least 60 hours more a year reading books than any other demographic group. And I actually thought about that and I said, what would make us spend more and what would make us read more? And I finally realized it's the one spot where we can go and get an unfiltered opinion. So when we're having conversations with someone and we're wanting to learn, based on who you're talking to, you may get a different version of the narrative. But when someone gets ready to publish a book, you got their best 10,000 hours, right? And so it's a safe place for us to go and learn. And because we are always out there trying to acquire skills, it's a perfect spot to do it. So when I think about um, access to the pipeline, I think that you first have to start with somebody that is within that pipeline because you have to know how to have conversations with that actual community. You basically need a broker that sits in the middle that understands you have a business need, but you also have a good community need as to why this needs to happen. And you've got to have someone else that's in the middle willing to really make that introduction. It's a referral like it is in any other thing that we're getting ready to do. So the pipeline is always there. It's just a function of do you have access to it? Do you have the right champions, the people that believe in you, that trust the work that you say that you want to do, in that they're willing to release or make an introduction to their audience on your behalf. Because a lot of times you may find that an organization wants access to a particular community. You're kind enough to give it, but it, it, it was nothing more than a press release. And so when we get ready to make these big leaps, you want to make sure that there's something on the other side of it, that the community that we're tapping gets something tangible out of it. Yeah, I love that. Um, Unfortunately, we're almost out of time, <laughs> but as we head into um, the holiday season yeah. and the new year, I want to um, be a bit optimistic. So may I mm -hmm. ask you, um, you know, there's a lot of fights still to be had to make this world better, but what makes you most optimistic about 2024? I think um, conversations like the one that we're having today, um, the work that I'm doing with Penguin, 
um, when I sit down and have conversations with children. And so um, they're still very much so innocent and they're inspired um, by corners of the work that's being done. And as long as I can look at a child and I can see hope in their eyes, then it gives me the luxury to keep going and knowing that everything will be okay because there's a future generation that's right behind us that's counting on us to really get it done. So I think as long as there are children that believe in us, um, and as long as conversations like this continue to happen all around the world, then I think the future is in good hands and I've got on my gear and ready to get the work done in 2024. Yeah, I love that. Well, now we are out of time. <laughs> thank you so much for coming, Tamara. Yeah, and um, yeah, let's just keep these conversations yeah. happening. Let's do it. Thank you for having me.